Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. bunch of disturbing stories keep popping up. The uh, authorities are cracking down on journalists. I guess that sounds dramatic. I, I don't know how else to describe it. They're certainly pushing the boundaries of the relationship between law enforcement and the courts and journalists. Uh, we've seen this with a number of stories. Of course, there's the uh, vice journalist Ben McCoo, who's been on this show. The RCMP are demanding that he hand over his files and uh, reveal all kinds of information about his sources. And uh, the update on that one is that the court just uh, granted intervener status to a bunch of civil liberties groups. So groups like the CJFE are going to be able to uh, join Vice in defending Ben. And in doing so, they're going to be standing up for journalists' rights to protect their sources uh, across the board. But it doesn't end with Ben. Uh, John McFadden of Northwest News Services, a reporter up in Yellowknife, we reported on a bunch of uh, uh, precedents that happened as the RCMP started to come down on this guy, banned him from attending their press conferences. Uh, That's an unprecedented thing for the RCMP to say that they don't think it was productive for them to answer his questions. Finally, he uh, had his camera out and was uh, filming RCMP officers uh, during an altercation. They arrested him and charged him with obstructing justice. Update on that one is that he has been exonerated. And in fact, uh, in a blistering decision, the judge said to the RCMP, what is concerning is a certain willingness on the part of two officers to exaggerate, to make a point and to evade answering certain questions. Uh, about this reporter who had been on the outs with the RCMP for a long time as a journalist before they arrested him and charged him. Uh, It's not just here in Canada, of course. Amy Goodman facing very serious uh, rioting charges in the States when she was covering protests against an oil pipeline down in North Dakota. And then most recently, and what we're going to talk about today, is what just happened in Labrador. Now, I've been doing a series of episodes uh, talking about the companies that are progressing media forward, the independent online uh, digital news companies in Canada. And I wanted to talk to the independent, not the other independent, our independent, the independent.ca, which is a news site covering Newfoundland and Labrador. It's an interesting story that uh, I could easily dedicate an episode to just telling their story because this larger question we're having, can a newspaper turn it around and make a go of it online? The independent actually started years ago as an independent newspaper covering Newfoundland and Labrador, and their timing was not good on that, and they went out of business in 2008. But then they popped up again in 2011 as an online-only news source. 
And on this, uh, I'm not one to talk, but on their frankly ugly and, and retrograde news site, they've been delivering some fantastic journalism and really doing a lot of hard news coverage. And, you know, it's really like a one-man show a lot of the time. Uh, Justin Brake is the reporter and editor who, for all intents and purposes on most days, is the independent.ca. And the timing was such that I just happened to send him a message saying, hey, do you want to come and do a Canada Land? And he said, I can't. I'm covering a story right now, and it's it's evolving as we speak, and I don't have a moment. And that was right before I heard the news about him. I should be careful about that. I didn't hear the news through the Globe and Mail or through the CBC or anything like that. I heard the news through, I think, Ricochet uh, had it first and it was bouncing around through Twitter. But what I learned was that Justin Brake was covering, I think he was the only person covering to the extent that he was on site, a major protest against a hydroelectric project in Labrador where members of all the different indigenous communities, the Inuit, Inu, and Metis local indigenous communities in Labrador, all joined together to occupy this hydroelectric dam project to prevent its flooding uh, by this crown corporation, Nalcor. Uh, is a major event, and Justin Brake was the only one there covering it because he was the only journalist who went into the project with the occupying protesters. He brought national attention to this issue, and this was not a case necessarily of national attention being getting the attention of mainstream media. His Facebook Live videos, his live streaming and his and his uh, articles and everything he was doing from the occupation brought this to the attention of thousands and thousands of people across the country, uh, I believe without much mainstream media participation in this story. Nevertheless, it was a major story, and we know about it in close detail because of Justin Brake. And then came a court injunction calling for his arrest. He was lumped in with the protesters as a trespasser, and he was told if he stayed, he would be arrested. I am not going to get into the legal aspects of this. Some people have asked me, is there some special designation that allows journalists to break laws that other people have to follow? And while I'm not aware of any specific laws that make that possible, I know that we also do have freedom of expression and the freedom to tell people about what's happening and to report that is respected in law in other places. And I think that there might be some conflict between different aspects of law. This might even be a constitutional issue. But I will say this, journalists follow the story. The law leaves us alone. That's sort of how it's always worked. And what I've wanted to know is, is there any precedent in modern Canadian history for a court order, for an injunction, asking for the arrest of a journalist who's on site during a protest or anywhere else where there is undeniably uh, a news story of national interest taking place? So that's the ultimatum that the authorities handed to Justin Brake. Leave. Stop doing your job. Stop telling the rest of the country about what's happening in Muskrat Falls or we'll throw you in jail. I am going to speak with him in a minute about everything that happened and what he did next when he was facing that decision. But before I do, I want to point out on that list of journalists who have faced serious challenges to their pocketbooks, to their freedom from the authorities for just for doing their jobs, you will not find a journalist who reports for the CBC or the Globe and Mail or any mainstream news source. That is the deal that we have had with law enforcement for decades. They kind of leave journalists alone. And I think that might be changing now that this kind of journalism is increasingly being done by independent operations like Justin Brake at theindependent.ca. He joins me in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Jerry Shamius, Harmit Ahuja, Paul Bucci, Lisa Wilkinson, Philippe Darvasi, Brendan O'Kelly, Richard Nault, and Aaron Gray. Aaron, why did you decide to be awesome? Because Canada Land has shown me how important the media is to democracy. 
This episode is also brought to you by our founding sponsor, FreshBooks.com. FreshBooks is the accounting department for people and businesses that can't afford accounting departments. It's that simple. If what you're doing as a freelancer or contractor or small business requires, as I'm sure it does, invoicing and expenses and time tracking, you got to do your taxes every year, all of this paperwork, all of these headaches, but you are not at the scale yet where you have somebody dedicated to doing that stuff, somebody has figured it out for you and somebody has figured it out knowing that your passion is not doing your books. The whole point is to get you back to your actual job as soon as possible while keeping a very competent hand on the financial side of things, on the reporting, on the invoicing and the billing. There's tax season. There's that ever-present need to get paid as quickly as possible. There's all sorts of stuff that you need your accounting software to do. But when you log in, you want it to be easy. Most times, 99 out of 100 times, you're just coming to see what do people owe me? What do I owe people? How are we doing? Did I get paid? And they put that all up front in the new redesigned FreshBooks. Try it out for free to see what I'm talking about. Go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. When you do decide to become a customer, tell them that CanadaLand sent you and you'll be doing this show a favor. And the show is brought to you by our patrons, more than 500 new patrons. I'm going to keep this short and sweet. There is a direct relationship, or at least there should be, between how much people support us and how much I bug you. You have been supporting us so wonderfully and generously. I'm not going to bug you very much. But I will say a couple of things to the people who haven't supported us yet and think that they might. Now is the time to do it. There are a couple of big reasons. One is that we are close to hitting our next goal, which is a podcast development fund. We will take pitches from anybody and we'll make three pilots for new shows. And then we will turn one of them into a regular Canada Land series and we'll involve our supporters in making that decision. We want to know which of those three shows you want us to make a series into. So that's an exciting thing that we could use some extra support for. The other thing is what everyone is going to see happen is we may even hit that next goal for the podcast development fund. And then it turns into November and you'll see immediately that like something between three and $500 a month of support will disappear. Now, those are not people who decided to stop supporting Canada land. Those are people whose credit cards expired. It is called attrition. It is called churn. And any credit card based business knows what I'm talking about. And if we don't replenish our crowdfunding once a year, we will just wither away month after month. You can just see that attrition going. So this is when we replenish. This is when we need your help. And that's why I'm speaking to those of you who think, well, maybe I'll do that in time, but they seem to be doing okay right now. This is when we need the help because now is when your help inspires other people to help. If it's a dollar a month, if it's $5 a month, the rewards this year are fantastic, including our forthcoming Canada Land book. Check it out. Go to patreon.com slash Canada Land and be a part of what we're doing here. It is it is a strange and I think wonderful thing that this company exists in this way that it does. And we do that because people like you help us. Thank you. Quick disclosure before we get to the interview. We are an interested party in this story. Canada Land has decided to sign a letter that uh, a bunch of small news organizations uh, put together decrying the court's injunction calling for the arrest of Justin Brake. We believe that this sets a precedent for all journalists in Canada, and we have taken a position on this story. Maybe you can start at the beginning and uh, tell me about the story that you're covering in Labrador. Muskrat Falls has been one of the big uh, news items in Newfoundland and Labrador for probably about the past five years. It's a huge uh, mega dam at a price tag right now of uh, $11.5 billion and still growing and it's two years behind schedule and $4 billion in cost overruns so far. As the uh, 
phase of the construction of the project was approaching where there would be enough construction done that they could start uh, filling the reservoir with water. People were started getting really anxious around here in the Lake Melville region of Labrador. And the reason being because there was a peer-reviewed scientific study that was released earlier this year. It was led by uh, researchers at Harvard University. And that study projected that uh, methylmercury levels in the reservoir would increase the mercury levels in Lake Melville downstream. It's a big 3,000 square estuary significantly, and it would pose significant health impacts on the Inuit living downstream. The study just focused on Inuit, but there's Inu, Inuit, and settler Labradorians who all uh, harvest fish and seals and birds uh, from the area. And so that study showed that people were, depending on how much uh, vegetation and topsoil and stuff was cleared from the reservoir, that uh, a number of people would be would be put above what uh, Health Canada and uh, the EPA consider to be safe levels of methylmercury exposure. Methylmercury is a dangerous neurotoxin, right? It can affect infants who are nursing. It can be transmitted from the mother to the baby, the fetus in the womb. You know, it can affect the brain development of uh, babies and, and, and infants. And uh, I mean, the Innu have been harvesting fish from from these waters for thousands of years. So I started, I came up and I started reporting on it. And the, the stories were, you know, pretty well received in the sense that I think a lot of locals hadn't really seen any in-depth journalism being done on the matter here. Were you the only one up there covering this? I was the only one up here who began to cover it regularly. The Independent is a very small operation, so I came up and I devoted day after day to reporting on this, and I was probably publishing an article a day, and uh, therefore kind of, you know, not really covering other issues in the in the Independent. So it was kind of all about Muskrat Falls. There have been protests over the last five years. There have even been arrests and junctions uh, sought uh, through the Supreme Court of Newfoundland and Labrador, and those eventually thrown out. And basically, protest, people who were protesting, many of them uh, Indigenous, would just be kind of arrested and taken away, and the, the work would proceed. And the protests were for various different reasons. There's a lot of different problems associated with the, the hydro project. Protests began happening, uh, you know, about three weeks ago when NALCOR, the Crown Energy Corporation, leading the project, announced that they would begin flooding the reservoir, the first phase of flooding, on October 15th or later. That date all of a sudden became like a deadline for people to resist the project because once that flooding happened, according to that Harvard study, you know, methylmercury would start being created in the reservoir within 72 hours and then flowing downstream and bioaccumulating in the food web that thousands of people tap into and harvest uh, from. When you say harvest from and tap into, you're like it's it's a different situation than simply you know not that there's anything minor about your drinking water being tainted, but you're talking about communities that like fish for subsistence and and are incredibly dependent on there being a lack of horrible toxins in the in the water supply. That food is called country food, right? So country food being any wild meat that you harvest uh, from the land or from the water. And the various, there's like probably six or seven communities uh, bordering Lake Melville. They depend on their country food from Lake Melville to varying degrees. So there's one community called Rigolette. It's an Inuit community in Nunatsiavut. 
they harvest more than anybody from the lake. And so that study uh, showed that they would be at the greatest risk of methylmercury poisoning, also known as Minamata disease. So they, they actually, it's a very small community, 300 people. They're way, like, you can only get to it by boat or by plane. And it's uh, quite far from uh, Goose Bay, which is the hub of central Labrador. Once Nalcor announced the deadline to when they could begin flooding, people started to get anxious and uh, been angry and maybe desperate. And people would gather up alongside the highway and then march in together onto the work sites. And then uh, there were also rallies planned in the community. Protests started popping up in St. John's. And then over the last few weeks, protests have spread right across Canada, Ottawa, Montreal, uh, Fredericton. The pressure started being put on to politicians, all of them, you know, basically saying it's too late, the project's too far along, there's deadlines, there's legal and the contractual obligations with companies working on the project. We can't just stop it and address this issue. But the movement swelled so much that eventually, uh, about a week and a half ago, people started protesting outside the main gate and set up a blockade. They let vehicles and workers out, but they stopped traffic going into the site and effectively shut it down. Nalcor applied, I guess, for an injunction to the Supreme Court of Newfoundland and Labrador. That was delivered that evening uh, after dark. And before dark, the next morning, the police showed up and arrested eight people. And then later in the day, another person. And I was there uh, to capture that on film. And that film... Uh, that footage outraged people in the province, particularly here in Labrador, who who have a good understanding of how important it is that people uh, be able to maintain the access to that food supply and also their traditional cultural practices, which are a significant part of their identity in addition to like providing food for them, right? So that angered people, and I think that was a calculated move on Nalcor's part. They probably thought that they could quell the protests if they make an example of protesters who at this point were identifying as land protectors. That's how I've been referring to them in my reporting. That's an assumption I'm making on my part, that that Nalcor was thinking that they could quell the protests. But I don't think that they would have ordered the arrests if they realized what was going to happen after that, because the movement just swelled after that again. They were trying to, it doesn't stand to reason that they were trying to escalate things. Well, they were definitely not trying to escalate things. That's right. The next day, the blockade was broken and people were going in, in and out. Two days after the arrests, there was probably 200 people gathered right across the highway from the main gate. This is only a little small two-lane highway. So, you know, members of the Inu Nation and the Inuit of Nunatsiwit and Nunatuavut. And they were all coming together, plus, uh, you know, settler Labradorians. It was uh, many people have noted in the, in the last uh, few weeks that this is the first time in the history of Labrador that all four groups have united over something. They've historically been divided, you know, as they negotiate land claims with the federal government, all this stuff, right? Some members of the uh, Inu uh, community, the local Inu community here, Shezerji, somebody who's really well, well respected in the community, uh, his name is uh, David Nook, uh, came and people had been waiting, wondering why the Inu weren't joining the protests. It's on their land, the project. Well, can I, can I just get some clarity on that? If it's on their land, the uh, the project, had they not signed off on the deal? Were they not beneficiaries in any way? Was this completely against their will? What, what was What's the background there? They signed a comprehensive land claims agreement with Canada in 2008, and it's called the New Dawn Agreement. 
there was a lot of controversial activity uh, in the lead up to the signing of that agreement. And I'm learning now, now that I'm up in Labrador and uh, starting to uh, talk to people from the community there, they feel like there was some corruption involved and that a lot of the, the Inu leaders at the time and the ones now have a lot of business uh, interests. So there's some members of the Inu communities who are making a lot of money off the project. So the question is, did, did, did leadership within that community do something untoward or corrupt to line their own pockets at the expense of their community. And I suppose there's a further question because it's not just about the land. If it contaminates the water, it's all the surrounding communities that are affected as well. Yeah, yeah. So the project is on uh, the land that that Canada, you know, negotiated with the Inuit Nation as part of their land claim agreement. But they had to give up the land around Muskrat Falls as part of that negotiation. And that's, I'm told, uh, you know, from people who study this, a tactic that Canada uses, you know, they'll they'll make indigenous groups uh, fight for decades to get a land claim, but uh, if there's uh, you know a particular area of that land or natural resource, valuable natural resources on that land, they'll speed it up so that they can get access to that, and they'll make that those resources relinquishing those resources a part of the land claim. And so there were Inu leaders uh, at the time uh, who were in charge, including Peter Pashway, who then went on to become an MP for the Harper government, he was ultimately the leader on that. He was the one that uh, in the Inu Nation that really made that land claim happen. And uh, people in his own family were really against Muskrat Falls. So that the project created some divides within the community. But there were things that happened in the lead up to the signing of that uh, land claim. There had to be votes in the communities to get uh, a significant amount of support. And uh, people were paid out uh, $5,000 for every man, woman and child sometime right in the lead up to that vote and uh, somebody described it to me today actually as a sort of tactic for laying a trail of crumbs in the lead up to that vote to sign the agreement because there's a lot of social problems a lot of poverty and stuff in the two Inu communities uh, in Labrador a lot of it of course the result of uh, you know colonialism let me make sure I understand what you're saying that that, that there was an incentive to sign this deal where each member of the community would be given five thousand dollars if it went through or 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 in t- Not if it went through. Every family, every person in the uh, community received five thousand dollars prior to the vote, as like a sweet, as a bribe. Is I guess the word that comes to mind. Well, I can't say that it's a bribe, but uh, you know, because you would have to have evidence of words that were said. <laughs> you know, in in uh, and I wasn't there, wasn't present, and it's a. Uh, you know, as an outsider, not somebody who's in the Inu communities, I haven't received a first-hand account of what exactly was said. Okay, I, I got gotcha. you. But basically, like, conditions were being created. Many Inu people who I've spoken with feel that the conditions were being created to favor a vote for the uh, New Dawn Agreement, which included relinquishing the land around Muskrat Falls. Okay, so this takes us to we now have all four parties united in opposition to this project. Everyone is in attendance. What happens next? The blockade was broken by the police, and then the next day there was uh, little activity. The day following that, there was about 200 people gathered up across the highway where a camp had already started to be set up, some tents and stuff. David Nook, the and respected uh, you know Inu elder, said, you know, the Inu are with you. So he just got up and he walked across the highway. 50 people followed him across the road. Slowly, people trickled across the highway from the safe zone where the police had told people to go and protest across the road into the injunction zone. 
this past Saturday, there was a rally planned by noon to two of it. I showed up to cover it. The rally hadn't even really started yet. And all of a sudden you just heard a, heard a noise at the fence where there was a chain and a big padlock that got cuts. And all of a sudden 60 people stormed the, through the gate. And, uh, and then these, you know, trucks were going up the road. I ended up hopping in the back of one of them because I wouldn't have been able to keep up with the story. So I went through the gate as soon as everybody, I saw people running them. I said to myself, like, I, I didn't really have too much time for an internal dialogue, but I said, this is happening, so I've got to cover it, you know? Hold on a second. Hold on a second. You're trespassing at that point, right? Well, I was trespassing already covering the blockade, and so were other journalists. You know, we were standing in the injunction zone. So This is an important part that I want to uh, slow down and examine for a second because there have been a few people online responding to the outrage over what happened next. Some people are saying, what does he expect? He's trespassing. He's on private property. He knows that. You know, you're not a, you're, is, is a, being a journalist some sort of magic force field that protects you from the law? And I want to I want to stop and explain how you saw your responsibility and uh, what 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 you did and what journalists do in these situations. So you say you didn't have time to, to consider it too carefully. Um, now that you do have a chance to think about it, what do you have to say? I did the right thing. I know I did. Um... There shouldn't really be a risk of serious legal implications for journalists. We know that sometimes journalists are arrested and candidates. We just need to look back uh, three years to Miles Howe for the Halifax Media Co-op covering the anti-fracking protest and Elsie Bukta. Uh, you know, he was arrested, I think, three times and the charges were all dropped. I knew that there was a chance I could be arrested, but I figured I was safe and wouldn't have to fight any kind of lengthy legal battle or be convicted of anything being a journalist and, you know, and identifying myself to police as a journalist and having a press pass, you know, attached to the front of my vest and all that kind of stuff. This wasn't just a protest. This is a really important moment in Labrador's history, as I mentioned, because all three Indigenous groups and the settler Labradorian population had all united against something. And uh, that kind of unity, uh, many people have told me, hasn't been seen here ever in the history of uh, of this land, what they call the big land. Well, you know, I, I think whether uh, whether you stand in, in solidarity with them, with your own personal politics or not, I think it's it's objectively, this is a, a highly newsworthy event that it seems like somebody from the press should bear witness to. I think it's important, uh, you, you cite a precedent of another journalist being arrested at a similar, under similar circumstances. That's the exception to the rule, isn't it? I mean, usually you can kind of go into dangerous situations and be reasonably confident that your press credentials, just the, the very, very fact that you're there as a reporter means you won't. I mean, I think that's, you know, beyond, this is an important story itself, but it's also an important precedent. And I think what a lot of your fellow journalists are concerned about is that the bar has moved in this case, because now you got to think twice before following the news if you're going to get locked up. I knew that I was covering an important story, and therefore I went through the gates. So it wasn't my personal politics that drove me through the gates. It was the fact that I knew I was covering something that was immensely newsworthy. The land protectors went uh, about 10 kilometers up the road. They had navigated several roadblocks of pickup trucks and heavy equipment left in the road. 
I guess that stuff had been brought up really quickly as soon as they found out the gate was broken down and they eventually couldn't get there. It was down to one truck and, you know, about 50 people probably at that point, some people turned back and went out. So the first thing they saw was the main workers camp where, you know, somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 workers, I believe, stay at that camp. You know, it's well known in the community here that a lot of people working on the project don't actually support it. Money is really good. One of the organizers, Kirk Lethbridge, told the workers, basically, we just want you to know that we are peaceful, that we are not here to hurt anybody, put anybody out of work. We do want to shut this down. We're trying to protect our food and our way of life. After that, the group started walking down the main corridor of that uh, camp. The workers were holding out their hands, shaking their hands, some of them hugging them. It was a really amazing moment to see this kind of solidarity and uh, I was there to capture it. I had never really been into uh, Facebook live streaming before, but I turned it on because I didn't have proper equipment because I didn't think I was going through those gates. Right. Basically had two iPhones on me and I didn't even have my full charger. I had my cord in my pocket and a worker leaned over to me on the inside and said, uh, you know, do you need anything? And I said, I need an iPhone plug. And a few minutes later, there's an iPhone plug in my hand. So uh-huh. I was able to keep charging and covering this throughout the, the, the subsequent four days. They decided to stay and occupy the camp. They were able to shut down yesterday or the day before. They had the entire project shut down, the work in every part of the project. So after two days in the camp, uh, and this is coexisting with the workers too, They had reinforcements come in. Some people had to leave for medical reasons and family reasons, and they were driven back to the main gate by NALCOR security, I guess. There was a second storming of the main gate, and it was mostly members of the Inu community. Uh And they walked for three and a half hours in the dark, in the wet, cold snow, and they were soaked when they got to the camp. On the third day, the group split uh, into two, and 25 of them went out in the snow and decided to start marching 15 kilometers towards the spillway where the on the river, like the actual dam itself where it's being constructed. And they wanted to shut that down because they knew that if construction was going ahead on that, then the flooding would be even more imminent. There were elders with them, but they also got, to, so they were going a bit to, you know, slower than they might have otherwise. So they sought refuge in a medical tent and decided to, uh, to come back to the, the place where the rest of the group was still occupying in the main camp there. So I'm documenting all this on Facebook, right? I'm using Facebook's live streams to document all this. Part of what I was documenting as well was conversations with the land protectors, with indigenous leaders on the outside, with uh, politicians on the outside. They called up the environment minister who was actually their MHA and, uh, you know, we're looking for a direct line to the premier and stuff like that. The premier agreed to have a meeting with the three indigenous leaders and the, the land protectors wanted representation at that. They wanted to have one person representing the three Indigenous groups and the non-Indigenous Labradorians at the table with the Premier and the Indigenous leaders. They didn't get that uh, representation, so that uh, made them a bit angry. So I'm documenting all this, and as the days are proceeding, we're seeing like interactions between the land protectors and workers. We're seeing the things that the land protectors are doing. They're praying together, singing together, playing ping pong and playing cards and being peaceful, normal people. And uh, that narrative is, uh, I think, what doesn't often get out to the masses when there's protests and especially things like occupation of a, you know, a $12 billion project. The police were called in. They told people on the inside, 
the land protectors that they were calling in reinforcements. There were photos of tactical unit trucks that coming across the ferry from Newfoundland, surfacing on social media. So the land protectors were getting a bit anxious and uh, they knew there was a police presence uh, coming. But in the conversations that some elder land protectors were having with the RCMP, they were having these conversations and I was live streaming their reaction to the conversation. And some of them have had a lot of experience with RCMP, I guess. And they were thinking strategically anticipating what the RCMP might do. And I was live broadcasting this. And it was clear that the RCMP didn't like it because in a subsequent phone call with one of the elders, uh, one inspector, you know, said that I wasn't uh, reporting perhaps ethically, you know, that I maybe misrepresented because I was reporting rumors or reports that were coming from the outside, that kind of thing. I think two things really through the RCMP and NALCOR for a loop, which one of them being that uh, people on the outside were able to see that there were people of all ages and backgrounds in there. They were peaceful. They were eating together, sharing the floor together at night, sleeping. The potential RCMP uh, tactics and ways of dealing with the situation were being potentially exposed by by having elders speaking uh, about what they anticipate from the RCMP on live on Facebook. So the support outside the gates in all across Labrador, across Newfoundland, and I think across Canada as well, really grew really fast for the land protectors, the people that were occupying. And I think it really neutralized, uh, it shifted the power. Uh, often we see the power in the police's hands in these situations because they're able to go in without the gaze of the, you know, the world watching, uh, without journalists uh, necessarily being there, and, uh, and, and make the arrests and get people out. And uh, the, the people that I was uh, covering and reporting on felt that probably had I not been there to uh, put the camera on them and show them and put the camera on the police as well, that uh, they might've been out of there on the first day, might've been hauled out of there. I feel awful that a journalist should even have to defend the value of them simply being there to document what happened. Like a journalist shouldn't have to say, oh, my work had this particular positive impact to justify that they should be allowed to do their work and report on things. It just so happens that that your work probably did in this case. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. So yesterday morning, people had read on uh, the website of a local media outlet that there was another injunction that uh, the court had approved, and uh, they named 22 individuals on it, and one of them was me. Uh, Nobody was surprised that there was another court order coming their way, but I was quite surprised to see my name on there because as far as I know, and this is coming from uh, an editorial that was written for uh, Ricochet on the situation, I haven't had the chance to do research myself on it, but... uh, it's either very rare or maybe has never happened before where a journalist who's on the job is named in a Supreme Court order to cease doing their job or risk being arrested. Yeah, and we're going we're gonna to check up on that too. And, and that is of high importance that uh, for a Supreme Court to, to, to include the name of a journalist on this, this injunction for you to be arrested and basically say, either stop reporting this or you're going to get locked up. And when you say yesterday, you're referring to Tuesday, October 25th. People are going to be listening to this a little bit later. Um, but, but, but that is, I think why you and I are speaking right now is that you, you were the guy where the, where the bar got lowered, where, where, where things changed. Yeah. Why do you think that was, uh, do you think if you were from the CBC, they would have put your name on that injunction? I'm not sure that, you know, when the gate was broken down, CBC reporter went through the gates a few feet and interviewed somebody who was going through the gates and, uh, didn't, you know, fought, pursue the crowd of 60 people going up the road. I also uh, heard after that the people that came in later on the second night uh, were accompanied uh, by a journalist 
from another news outlet and that he had come all the way down to the camp, but then may have gotten instructions to leave because he disappeared and we never saw him again. It might have been different if it was a higher profile, but I think in Newfoundland and Labrador, the Independent does have a pretty strong uh, readings, you know, and I had been covering the protests for a month, so they certainly knew who I was and what kind of readership we had. My best kind of hypothesis that I have for it is that we had 50 people in there, and but, but when I say we, I mean the province, you know, the, 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 I guess you could say countrywide. I don't know if this something like this has happened before, but you had 50 people of different age demographics and from different backgrounds and uh, all occupying this space uh, together. And because they're, they're being broadcast to the rest of the province and country and the world, anybody who wanted to watch, that, I think, really shifted the balance of power. Police weren't able to maybe uh, rely on their usual strategies or tactics to, to end these kinds of uh, protests. Wow. The suggestion there is is that uh, you were not targeted in this injunction despite the fact that you were a journalist, like, oh, well, he's he's trespassing too, so let's lump him in with the protesters. Uh, you're saying that you might have been targeted because you were a journalist to stop this document that was contradicting their interests from getting out. That makes the most sense to me at this point in time. You know, this is only this only happened yesterday. So, but at this point in time, I feel like the fact that these people had been in there for four days and the police had no idea how to move on the situation because they would have been live. <laughs> they would have been live on the internet. And uh, these people had the province behind them. They had everybody outside and they had 99.5% of the workers on the inside, I would say, supporting them. So it was a situation that was really difficult for Nalcor and the RCMP to figure out how to move. And that's the only reason I can think that they would go to the such you know, extreme draconian measure of putting my name on, on the court order. You did leave this occupation and you stopped doing your job covering what was happening for fear of being locked up and for lack of resources to fight a lengthy court battle. What happened next? Do you, uh, do you regret that decision? Uh, at this point, I don't regret it. it was a, I, I spent a few hours thinking about it and uh, decided that I could better cover, continue covering the story from outside the gate than from inside a prison cell. I did one last live broadcast, and uh, it was really emotional, not on my part, but people uh, were feeling really sad that I was leaving and vulnerable because they knew that the police had already had a presence right outside the building. And they had a little ceremony. There was drumming, and they went outside with me and saw me off, and I started walking up the 11-kilometer dirt road in the snow. It was picked up a few moments later by an outdoor worker and driven out. As soon as I got back to the main gate, there were probably a couple hundred people, and they were all cheering for me. One of the positive things that has come from it is that it's drawn national media attention. Maybe some people who weren't paying attention to the story are now. It shows that uh, when you challenge significant power, maybe there will be extreme measures taken in response. After you left, a deal was reached and the occupation ended. Protesters left the, the project site. Was this a good deal? Is this settled to everyone's satisfaction? Uh, no, uh, pretty much uh, most of the people that were occupying the building and members of the Inu community are the sense I'm getting. I just came back from the gate a little while ago because the rest of them came out. So I spoke with several people and they're upset that they weren't included in the talks. They want to see no flooding going ahead this fall at all. The government and Alcor say that flooding has to happen to protect the integrity of the dam before everything freezes up. So. It might be over for a lot of people, but it's not for some, and I'm going to be reporting that. So why would they end the occupation and leave if they didn't like the deal? 
they no longer had the world watching. I encouraged them to use social media, and at least one of them uh, did a couple of live broadcasts from the inside, but definitely didn't have the same audience that they had when The Independent was doing it. I think they were also neutralized or demoralized a bit, deflated maybe by the fact that this agreement had been reached after a marathon meeting between the Premier and the Indigenous leaders. It kind of gave the way the media reported it and the way that it was being, uh, you know, interpreted, I think, by a lot of the public outside. It was a deal. It was it was a done deal. And it was good. It was more than that people were going to get uh, before. But there are a lot of other issues with the project that people have. And the methylmercury issue and the reservoir issue came to the fore in this particular fight. And so people are object to the dam on uh, many other grounds. And I'm going to try and uh, make sure that before I leave Labrador, I'm able to put a light on some of those other issues as well. Do you feel like you've been supported by your fellow journalists in Canada? Uh, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I've I've had some wonderful support. I've been I've had incredible support from people in the province here, including some politicians, municipal politicians, and uh, elders in the indigenous communities. You know, I know I made the right decision. It's unfortunate that I have to face you know potential charges, but. It was definitely the right thing to do. There's been some good coverage. The local CBC uh, radio station, their morning show, they interviewed me yesterday and broadcast that this morning. Ethan Cox at Ricochet uh, wrote a very compelling editorial as soon as the news broke. And then he interviewed me later on. And I think he did an excellent job of representing exactly how I was feeling and, uh, you know, sort of my justifications, uh, my reasons for following that story. Done a few, few other interviews as well. Yeah, I don't know how far the story has gone. I know this is still ongoing, but uh, I mean, just looking back on what's happened so far, why why do you feel like your story matters? For one thing, you know, we're at a, we're at a point in time in Canada's history where, you know, for the first time ever, we've had a government that uh, has really led people to believe that there's going to be true reconciliation between the settler population of Canada and the Indigenous people. They've signed the United Nations uh, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, pledged to implement 92 or 94 calls to action in the Truth and Reconciliation Report. In our province, our uh, Premier has pledged to do that as well. And at this point in time, this project just in so many ways uh, infringes on the rights uh, of the Indigenous uh, population of this area. And, you know, one of the calls to action in the TRC report, I think it's a number 84, is it, uh, it compels journalists and media outlets to do a better job of reporting uh, accurately, fairly, and unbiasedly Indigenous issues and struggles. I think you make a strong case as to why this matters uh, to the country, why it's a newsworthy story. Uh, Why do you feel, if you do feel this way, why do you feel like it matters to journalists? If it becomes a thing that happens and it doesn't get uh, immediately uh, rejected by the uh, journalism community, but also by, you know, Canadian civil society, then it could be it could be a precedent. These things need to be obviously rejected uh, right away. And I think that uh, probably the coverage that the Independent was able to do of this uh, particular action, this occupation of the Muskrat Falls camp, is you know in my mind I think a really good example of why journalists and uh, media should have access and have protection and be able to have their constitutional right protected uh, if they decide to follow these kinds of stories. Justin, thanks very much. Yeah, my pleasure. That is your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com and I read everything you send me. I will respond when I can. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. 
Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash CanadaLand. This is the time. Check it out. Help us out. This week, you can listen to an episode of The Imposter on Wednesday. That show is on fire. Listen to it. It is fantastic. And on Thursday, I will be back with Shortcuts. I will also remind you that The Imposter is doing this incredible live show at the first Hot Docs Podcast Festival, November 20th. That is coming right up. They are doing Degrassiland, a look at the impact of Canada's most famous television franchise. And we will have the creator of Degrassi on stage to talk about the global impact of the show that she invented. Check out our Facebook page or just Google Hot Docs, Imposter, Degrassi, those things together and you will be able to buy some tickets. They are going fast. I make this show with Katie Jensen. Syndication is handled by Russell Gregg. If you like what Canada Land does and you want it to stick around, then please support us. In France, in the 13th century, a teenager ascends the throne. He seems calm, collected, and as it happens, drop-dead gorgeous. But looks can be deceiving, and no one is ready for the death, destruction, and chaos that lie ahead. Step inside the reign of one of the Middle Ages' most cold-blooded rulers on This Is History presents The Iron King, available wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.